Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Ink Drinker Literary Society. I'm your host, Brent Shubler, here with our co-host, Nikki. How are you doing, Nikki? Hi, I'm doing well. So great to be here. It is. Thank you for, for joining us again. Um, I appreciate you your time up for, for this. So um, today we're going to be talking about the book Asada um, with somebody that you know very well, um, Letty Gore. So we'll bring her on here in a minute. Um, but we're just looking forward to this conversation with her and we appreciate you bringing her in. Yeah, I know it's going to be really great. And so I'm excited to get into this conversation. Today, we are joined by a very special guest. Letty Gore is with us. Letty holds many titles that include historian, racial justice educator, top fan of James Baldwin, and host and owner of the History Shows Us podcast. Letty is always connecting the dots through the work she does as a historian. And as someone who has been learning from Letty the past few years, I can personally attest to her gift for teaching history. In addition to all of these titles, Letty is also an amazing and kind human, and I'm so very grateful to know her. So Letty, thank you for joining us for this conversation about Asada. Before we begin, is there anything you'd like to add to what I've said to tell listeners a little bit more about yourself? Thank you so much, Nikki. Uh, I am very happy to be here and having this conversation because I love to talk. So there's that. Um, I definitely love this book. It's uh, it's a book that everyone should read. And yeah, but um, to directly answer your question, because we know how I can get with the tangents. Uh, as far as what to add, thank you for that beautiful introduction. Um, shout out to you for the James Baldwin um, comment. Yes. And yeah, the only thing I would add is that I, um, I have a business. Um, it's uh, Letty's History Education and Consulting Services. I um, started that. Really, I started it in 2020, but I didn't file with the government until like 2022 because I went through a divorce and a separation. And honestly, to be real, I didn't want to have to go through all the paperwork with changing my name with the government with all of that. And people don't talk about that stuff enough, right? And so I'm pretty transparent with that with people. But yeah, um, that uh, is something I wanted to add. That's really it. And that I love to go on tangents so i'm just preparing listeners for that yes well as we always say in your patreon community we love a letty rant so, <laughs> yes all right well could you give some context and background about who asada support is for anyone who maybe has just heard the name but doesn't have a lot of information to go off of yeah of course i actually typed the answer to question so I would not go off on too big of a tangent with our time but I yeah I, I think I condensed it enough um, because Asada Shakur is someone for those of you who don't know this she's still alive she's still very much alive she is just not in the United States because she cannot be in the United States she had to flee to Cuba to survive um, to not be basically um, killed by the government. And even to this day, to this day, she is still um, one of the top most wanted people by the FBI, which is wild to me. It's <laughs> wild. But yeah, so just some things that I typed up um, so that I could 
make sure that I was letting everyone know the like enough about her, but I want people to read the book too. So yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically what the book does is it traces um, the events from Asada Shakur's early childhood to basically her political refugee status in Cuba. And even though the book was first published in 1988, uh, it's something <laughs> that we can still read today. And it's like someone wrote it two years ago, three years ago, 10 years ago, right. And um, also Asada Shakur uh, was the name that she decided to give herself. She was actually born Joanne uh, Chesimard, which is, that sounds nothing like Asada Shakur. Um, but uh, Asada was actually raised in North Carolina and in New York. And she was raised in Wilmington, North Carolina, where I live. I actually know the home, the area where she was raised. It's right in downtown Wilmington. Um, specifically though, in the area where many black people live downtown. And it's the same area where in 1898 on November 10th, whenever the race massacre happened here, um, it's one of the areas where the a couple of decades after that race massacre, black people uh, gathered to live amongst themselves. Um, not away from white people, but kind of just in their own little area. And so, yeah, um, she was raised by her grandparents um, in the South, obviously, but she was also, she was with her mom in New York at times as, as well. Um, her family taught her about how to survive as a young black girl in a racist society. And that shaped a lot of who she was. Uh, lessons that she took with her that became invaluable, that ultimately shaped her reasoning behind being as vocal um, and as active as she was in the Black Power movement. And she, speaking of that, she later became a member of the Black Liberation Army, and she was involved in the Black Panther Party, um, different other organizing groups during that time. But the book Asada actually starts yeah with her um on May 2nd 1973 she was driving with Zaid Malik Shakur and um Sundiata and I always almost mess that up but um this other person named Sundiata um on the New Jersey Turnpike um, whenever this New Jersey state trooper stopped them and Asada had already had several warrants for her arrest on charges that were not true. They were false charges. They were just reasons to paint her as a violent black woman. And um, but one of those charges was the alleged uh, kidnapping of someone and two bank robberies. Again, trumped up charges. Right. And so the confrontation with the state trooper led to a shootout. Um, that result that basically ended with Zaid's death, um, as well as that of the two state troopers. And Asada Shakur was severely injured, and she was blamed for the murder. So she was basically seen as, oh, well, you were actually, you're the one that tried to kill these two state troopers with no evidence of this, none, none at all, none at all. Um, and so, um, yeah, she was hospitalized. And I say that with an eye roll because 
being a black person hospitalized and being arrested was horrifying. Um, but she was incarcerated between 1973 and 1977 for, again, the shooting of the alleged shooting of these two state troopers and other charges they had trumped up. And so, yeah, for four years, she was tortured. Um, she was kept in solitary confinement. Uh, she was actually uh, pregnant in jail. It, it, it's, it, yeah, the book, there's a lot that's that's in the book. And so she eventually escaped from this maximum security prison where she was. And she's in Cuba till this day. Thank you for all of that background information. And like you said, the book goes into so much more of that. But just sitting too with how all these atrocious, horrible things that happened to her, but also like how funny she was. Like the part where she talked about how <laughs> when she was pregnant that she would say that it's the Black Messiah, yes. like took me out. So <laughs> just that she and like, oh man, there's just so much I could say, but I want to get all of your thoughts. So I'm curious though, did you grow up learning and hearing about Asada Shakur? Because- yeah. No, I was going to say, like, I knew her name as I got older, but mm -hmm. I was just thinking about how I didn't learn about her, like, during the supposed Black History Month or any of these things. And it's, like, shocking considering all of this information and how she's wanted by the government, all these things. It's, like, then makes you sit with, hmm, why don't we learn about her? But, Britt, you were going to say something? Yeah, this is like I had never heard the name until you mentioned the book in our meetings about Star Podcast. So this all for me was eye opening um, and just really like the way the book starts with with that description of of that night on the turnpike. It just grabs you. I mean, if you didn't know, you'd feel like you were reading, you know, a fictional memoir, like like not not a real memoir, a fictional, you know, one. So like. And, and again, the way she bounces back and forth between her early life and the present day of being incarcerated, just the the difference between the two really got you too, and and kind of seeing you know how she grew and changed as well. So I, I thought that was great. But yeah, this is my first experience with her, and so so much more to learn. Yeah. So Letty, let's think about the first time you read Asada. Then, like. Can you remember anything that stood out to you? Okay, so the first time I read Asada was in graduate school. I was getting my master's in history and it had to have been 2012 because I started graduate school January of 2012 and I didn't I didn't read Asada that first semester, but it had to have been that second one because I have a distinct memory of one of my professors, Dr. Harris, in one of his classes, and it had to have been in that class. Um, but I, I remember. So okay, so just some information for people. When whenever you're in graduate school for history, um, which is not like other grad programs, it is not. You have to read all things all the time. The end notes that are in books, you have to go find those articles and read those things and all the things. And I remember. I was digging into the Black Panther Party and Asada Shakur came up and it wasn't 
often that you ever heard any names of black women who were part of the Black Panther Party. So again, this is 11 years ago. Wow. Wow. 11 years ago um, that I'm being introduced, right, to the Panthers, but not the Black Panther Party that is stereotypical, not the, oh, they were violent and they just shot at cops. That's false, but we'll get there. Um, but I was like, oh, okay. okay. So who is this? Who is this woman? And like her, her name is so beautiful, right? And so whenever I read her autobiography, I remember I got a copy of it from the library. I didn't have my own physical copy. I got a copy of it from the library and I was putting like post-it notes all along the sides because I couldn't write in the book because it wasn't my book. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many things. And so um, I just remember being fascinated by the lens through which she saw the United States and United States democracy and how she so easily just flipped everything on its head. I, I mean, just because it wasn't just, it wasn't her opinion. It, she literally lived the life. Like she saw these things like she, and so, and she was so brilliant and it went along with other things I had read too that were written by people who were Black Panther Party members, other Black people just during this time with the Black Power, Mo Black Power Movement. And um, <laughs> the fact that the FBI and the United States government wanted her dead simply because she was a Black revolutionary woman uh, was fascinating to me. And I don't mean that in a way where I was very excited to like, oh, this is great. And I'm so, yes, it was great to learn the history. But what I mean is the lengths, the time, the money, the illegal operations. I mean, COINTELPRO, which is counterintelligence program, like they, it was created by the government to annihilate Black people. That's why it was created. It was, it was, illegal but the government knew all about it they 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 were fine with it right and so not only am i reading asada i'm learning all this history at the same time right because i didn't i i didn't i i couldn't just read one thing and just see it with that i had to read a bunch of other things at the same time because history is not in a vacuum but i just remember also another thing uh the way that she was treated in prison the way that she was treated in prison is actually what put me on the path to wanting to learn more about um, Black people in prison around the same time. So things like the Attica Prison Uprising, um, Angela Davis's work with um, abolition, even back in the 70s. <laughs> uh, it, so I'm, I'm thankful that I read Asada, not just because of her, but what she talked about, what she wrote about is the same stuff that I talk about now, but also in, in her book, the way that she's talking about her upbringing and the way she's talking about how she saw white America and how white America saw her was so relatable. It was so, so relatable. And I, I know there's a few quotes that I jotted down, which I know we'll, we'll get to that, but there's one that really stood out to me and even now in in my book i think i have it highlighted maybe um but it, it's it it stands out to me 
because she grew up as a black girl in white America. And the way that she paints this picture, it's very much the reality for many of us. Um, and for her to be able, and for, well, for, for her to write this book <laughs> while she's wanted in, in the United States was, that speaks volumes in itself. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I went back to our Patreon replay conversation from where we discussed these because I was like, hmm, what stuck out to me when I had read it? And I, so what I had talked about on that Patreon call was how I had this understanding of knowing that COINTELPRO existed, but reading about the psychological toll that it took on Asada to be followed, right? And to be subject to that surveillance of the government, how that added another layer to something that is, you know, kind of just this, oh yeah, I knew it existed, which, I, and then when I say I knew it existed as an adult, I uh, learned that it existed. It's not something I was taught about, you know, yet another thing that I did not learn about in school. And so, yeah, that was something that had stuck out to me. And so, yeah, as you revisit Asada, I know that you reread it with us. I don't know if you've read it other times, but was there anything that stuck out to you as another layer or something that you saw differently, like over the past 11 years, uh, as you've revisited Asada and her story? Uh, actually, yeah. So whenever I read it again with the Patreon book club, I was paying a lot of attention to her talking about how the personal is political because she she mentions that several times. And really, this entire autobiography is a demonstration of that, I believe, in a way. Um, but yeah, so the second time around reading it, because I yeah I had read it cover to cover again with you all but I've read it like pieces of it here and there within the last 11 years for research reasons or just reference but her talking about how the personal is political really is it's like it's drawing more from her understanding that as a black revolutionary woman um her personal experiences never came to sexism and racism and being targeted by the state and yeah and by white supremacy just in in general uh all had this impact on her as a person but specifically her well-being and how also though these personal experiences fueled how she responded politically and how she showed up right and so the personal is political that's that was a necessary, like that slogan kind of, I, I would say, is embodied in just her as a Black revolutionary woman and all that she had to go through. Because you you can't go through <laughs> life um, as a Black girl or as a Black boy or as a Black person and see things the way that she saw them, think the way that she was thinking, not necessarily think exactly how how she thought, but be in a country where racism is the default setting, right? Like that is the default setting. You, your realities and how you see the country, how you, your your political views are going to be directly shaped 
by the very same system, <laughs> right? That you're having to find yourself being politically involved with. And so she, her, her and other black people during this time, taking this political stance um, to be revolutionaries. I think people hear the word revolutionary and they think of it as, uh, oh, like they just stood up and they were just, they were very loud. Like they, they were louder than other people who were protesting. No, there's a lot more depth to being a revolutionary, right? I mean, you know, we hear other Black people at the time, like Fred Hampton, um, for, for example, talking about being a revolutionary. It literally meant that they were prepared for whatever came their way, period. Like they were just prepared. Um, there was no maybe. There, 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 there was no, oh, well, eh, we're going to maybe do it today and maybe not tomorrow. No, it was every day. Like this is what we're choosing because because the country is what it is and even today and i'm bringing this to like the president because that's what i do but um whenever we hear the word revolutionary today i've heard it since 2020 um more so rather since 2020 we have to be revolutionary with our thinking and i'm like i don't know if y'all really realize what that means um revolution like being a revolutionary means a complete overthrow of what we're doing now. It, it, it's it's a complete eradication of what's happening now. It's it's not just this word that sounds cool. Um, it is it is a commitment, right? Um, anyway, I know I just took that much further than the question you asked me, but it but but it goes with it because I I can't not I can't answer that without all of that. So. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. And again, I always love whatever you bring <laughs> into a conversation. So yeah. Well, there was one quote on page 37 where she says, in many ways, I was living a double existence. And that was in the context of who she is when she's at school and in this classroom setting, and then who she is when she's in her neighborhood and with her family and that kind of thing. And so I was curious if you could explain what she means with that and also share like could you relate to that part of her existence and her story oh a thousand percent like a thousand percent um it reminds me I, and I remember it because I, I also have that highlighted from the time that we read it before book club but also I guess I had highlighted it another time but that entire paragraph actually um because she's basically talking about how White people said that like classical music, right? I, I, I think she says like white people said classical music was the highest form of music. White people said that ballet was the highest form of dance. And I accepted those things as true. After all, wasn't I as cultured as they were? And that question, that question right there is so brilliant. It's brilliant that like she put that there because it's a rhetorical question. Right. Like it's like, a, yeah, I mean, I'm also cultured, so I can like those things. But she goes on to talk about how everything that they had, she also wanted to have. Right. Like the poodle jackets and the poodle skirts and these things. But it's the part where she's <laughs> it's the part where she said, I saved my culture, my music, my dancing, the richness of black speech for the times when I was with my own people. Yeah, that is still very much <laughs> relatable for me. Um, not that I'm not my full self where I go, but but historically, um, 
black people could not just be themselves wherever they went. Black people had to move off the sidewalk if a white person, a white child, didn't matter, was walking down the sidewalk. Um, black people uh, were not allowed to just laugh and be loud and have a good time out in public um, because then it was, oh, well, you're, you, you don't have a job to go to. Oh, well, why, why are you having a good time? Like any, any white, like any white person had the authority to question a black person, which is a whole conversation about policing, not police as law enforcement, but the act of policing black people, whole other conversation, whole different podcast, but I had to put that in there. Um, but yeah, I can, and I, I'm saying all that to say I can so relate because it's, it's, um, it reminds me of code switching and how black people, we've often had to do that. Um, and this is something that people should be very common as should, well, that people should commonly know about, uh, because it's nothing new. Right. And there are more people though, like myself who are stepping out of that and who are like, no, like this is, I'm going to be my, my full self, but I still find myself feeling safer being my full self around my family with other black friends. Uh, like <laughs> even during holidays at my parents, right. It's my mom, my dad, and my brother and my nephew, and we're all hanging out. My cousins come over and we're all just laughing and joking. You have a great time. And I'm my full self there, right. There's humor that I can display with my black family that, white people are not going to understand um, because there's a, there's a language that we just have. It's just part of our culture is um, yeah. And so that part definitely <laughs> stuck out to me. Yeah. Reading your um, reading your questions. It was funny that um, you had picked that. I was like, Hey, I highlighted that because it is, it is this double existence. And it also makes me think about W.E.B. Du Bois is the souls of black folk and how, he talks is much deeper and some some philosophical levels too but he's talking about um these two worlds or these these two people that black people have to be um these these different souls that we have to have because of the country because of where we are because of the racism and the white supremacy in the capitalism right that's why you have people like Asada who did feel more comfortable in their homes. That's why you have black people that have barbershops and beauty salons and things. And, oh, well, this is where you, you find out the like news and things. Well, yeah, because that was a safe place then. Like those were safe places. So not only is what she's saying, attesting to like, her lived experiences and the realities of black people, but it's also deeper than that. It's, it's about survival she's 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 like nudging that she's not going all the way into it but that's part of it so yeah yeah thank you for that and then before we transition to wrapping up the final questions I wanted to see oh Brent you came off mute so I assume maybe you had something else so I wanted to not rush into the next thing since, yeah yeah no and with, with what you were describing there Letty it it amazes me as I read through the book, seeing, you know, her, her progression from being two different people to just being her. There's so many reasons to, 
she never blames the white people. Like she realizes, and, and, and she says it towards the end, you know, when she's out, you know, meeting with the, the Asians and the Chicanos, how we all need to come together to over to, you know, to against the government that keeps everybody down, which it would be so easy. I could see it being so easy for her to not and just totally blow everybody off and, and be, you know, hardcore about that. But for her to, I still that, that we need to come together even after everything that she went through, which to me is amazing. It says a lot to her as a person. Yeah, it definitely does. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Brent, because what you just said is the mindset that a lot of Black people had at that time, but they weren't painted that way. And I mean, you learn about them in history books if you learn about them in school, right? It's that they are just these angry Black people and that's it. And they didn't, no, no. You, you had, and I know I mentioned him earlier, Fred Fred Hampton started the, the Rainbow Coalition. And let me just tell y'all something. That did not make the government happy on top of already hating him. I mean, because the government murdered him. They literally did while he was asleep in bed. And But the thing is, the Rainbow Coalition was white people, black people, brown people. And Fred was like, yo, we experience racism, white people, like y'all don't, um, but y'all are victims of capitalism, which is a kind of oppression that is affecting you in ways that you don't even realize because they're pitting you against us because they just want to make us be the bad guys when really they don't care about you either. They don't, they don't care about you not making any money working these jobs, right? It's the same thing that we say today, right? It's the same exact thing. And so, yes, Asada was another one of those people that was like, hey, um, y'all can be better than this. I want y'all to see that like y'all are also not benefiting from this system in the ways that you think that you are. Y'all benefit in ways you don't even realize because you're white people. Um, but you honestly are victims of the same capitalism that we're victims of, but ours is on a different level, right? And and it's if you all can see that, right, we could be so powerful. And that is exactly why you had the government. And I don't mean just, and for people who are listening, I don't mean just the government to think about it as, oh, so just the higher people in power, like the congressmen and things. No, whenever I say the government, I mean the country. Um, you had the FBI working with local police officers, local law enforcement, um, these little small towns. Everyone, everyone, <laughs> um, racist white people were involved with taking down Black people who were speaking out. And... It is, I, I will always see it as enormously brave and courageous of her to, <laughs> to have that view. And, and whenever people ask me, how do I still have hope, right? You know, people ask me that a lot. How do you still have hope? Because people like Asada still have hope. Like people like her still had hope, right? Like she, she's writing that book and she still has hope though she's writing it. <laughs> she's finishing it. Um, in a country where she had to flee from this country to live, right? And it's, that is what it means to also be a revolutionary person is to, is you you can never just abandon the country that you're, that you're born in. Um, and that's what she, she said, 
Baldwin said that, Stokely said that, Du Bois said that, all black black people have said that, right? Like you're you don't abandon the country, but we're but we're but we have to leave and we have to leave, but we want y'all to be better, right? And y'all could be better. And so yeah, I'm really glad that you brought you brought that up, Brent, because that's something that I love about her. If I could meet anyone else in the world, it would be her. I want to. I'm gonna try to figure out how to do it, but let me just tell y'all. Whenever, uh, what year was it? Like 2015, 2014 or 2015? And we, like the borders were open back up to Cuba and we were trying to like mend the relationship and Obama was actually the first person to step foot um, in Cuba in decades. The first thing I thought, the first thing I thought was, no, no, Assad is over there. What does this mean? Does this mean they, they can get her? No. We can't, we can't go, <laughs> we can't go over there. I was terrified um, until I understood like how the government works there too. But yeah, I um, I really believe that people that read this book, um, if they read this book and they're not changed in some way, then you didn't read the book. You didn't read it. But you have to read the book through a lens of someone like Asada Shakur. No, you're not going to understand everything uh, because you're not her. But you have to read between the lines too. And I would also encourage people as they're reading this book, if like you don't understand something, go and, go and look it up. Go and look up what else is happening in the country at the same time. Because let me tell you something, 1973 in this country, yeah, what a wild time. What a wild time. It was wild here. Uh, I mean, it's always wild here because it's America. But honestly, like there were a lot of things happening. Um, anyway, I just went like a whole other way, but I got excited because Brent mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. Well, even as I think about her hope, but also the power of her words, I wanted to have an opportunity for you to share any favorite quotes from the book that stuck out to you before we wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't have the page numbers for these, but I have the chapters because I, these are notes that I took again during book club and I didn't put the page numbers down. <laughs> um, and I have all these posters on the side of my book, but I was like, I'm not going to try to find them right now because that's just going to be too much time. But in chapter three, uh, she said, or she wrote, I am a black revolutionary woman. And because of this, I have been charged with and accused of every alleged crime in which a woman was believed to have participated. And so that is actually from her statement to my people. Um, it was her first public address uh, since like, after she was arrested. And she's basically declaring, right, that being a black woman and a revolutionary had made her vulnerable to racist, um, and political attacks and being targeted, right, for these different crimes um, because of who she was put the country on display. Like that was the country, right? It's like that that's who America is. So there's that one. And then also in chapter three, and I thought I had the page number for this one, but I guess not. Um, I'm sorry, but but it's uh white people's fear of black people with guns will never cease to amaze me probably it's because they think about what they would do were they in our place 
Exactly. Exactly. Yes to that. Because let me tell you, the whole Second Amendment was written because white people were terrified of enslaved Black people revolting. That's why the Second Amendment even exists, right? Um, but people don't want to know that and admit that. But Carol Anderson wrote a whole book about it. And whenever she said that, like wrote that, I was like, yes, absolutely. Like they created entire pieces of legislation because Black people had guns. Um, and then this one is my like favorite, I think, in the entire book. And I've quoted this on Instagram before too. This is actually, and I know that I have this one like highlighted. I think it's on my PDF on my computer actually, because I have a physical copy and a and another copy. But this is it's in chapter 12. But she says, the schools we go to are are reflections of the society that created them. Nobody is going to give you the education, sorry, that you need to 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 overthrow them. Nobody is going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes, if they think that that knowledge will help set you free. Schools in America are interested in brainwashing people with Americanism, giving them a little bit of education and training them in skills needed to fill the positions the capitalist system requires. As long as we expect America's schools to educate us, we will remain ignorant. Always applicable. I love that quote from the book. I've got it highlighted. You're talking about all your highlights. I, I'll show you my book. I've got tons of posters yes! sticking out of mine too. Yes! Um, but yeah, that that quote there is. I mean, that's one of the main reasons that me and my partner decided to homeschool our seven kids, so we can teach them real stuff. You know, so I love I love that quote. I I highlighted it twice, double tagged it. <laughs> I think yeah. I might have even shared it on Facebook or, or Instagram <laughs> as well. So yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's in, it's incredible, and and that, but that even speaks volumes, right? I mean, Brent, like you as um, a white person in this country, right? Like choosing to recognize like what is happening. Like this is not like what kids learn is not. It's it's not the true history. I actually hated history growing up. I hated it. And it's because we learned the same five things about old white men with wars. And I was like, what are we talking about? I don't know what we're talking about. I don't understand any of this. And it wasn't until college that I was like, yo, this is amazing to me um, because I learned the truth. And yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have children, but I often think um, the, the day that I, if I decide to have kids one day, I don't know how that's going to work out for me with them going to public school because I'm going to be called all the time because my child will be like my mom said you're a liar and I'm gonna be like I mean it's not a lie though and nothing so I mean they're telling the truth and so that'll be the parent that's like I'm on my kid's side and there's gonna be a whole issue so I'm not gonna just homeschool because at that point it's just saving time right but yeah I mean and the thing is if I've, I've had people read that quote before and they're like oh well she just hated the country where did she say that? She said that nowhere, right? And so that's why I tell people, part of the work that I do with people is, why was that your first go-to? Why was that your first go-to? And why are you so blind to patriotism that you're refusing to see the truth that she's talking about when it comes to the education system here, right? Why? Why is that your, why is that your first thing, right, to run to and say, oh, well, she just doesn't appreciate the country. 
No, I don't think you appreciate the fact that your children are not learning true history, but that also goes to the fact that that's what people want. And that's when we're in the situation we're in now, right? It's like CRT and the lies, the lies about that. And school districts that are banning books because God forbid um, a child read Alice Walker's The Color Purple, right? Um, but they want children to learn about Hitler in high school and the Third Reich. And I'm like, I, I don't, what? <laughs> uh, not that learning about that history is bad. No, you should learn about history. Absolutely. But what are you so afraid of? All right, what are you so afraid of? Um, your history is that bad that you don't, you don't want your kids learning about it, right? And um, it's maybe that, but it's also what Baldwin talks about a lot. James James Baldwin, he talks about this often. It's a fear. Uh, and it's not a fear, and that's not an excuse for for white people, no. But it's a fear of facing yourselves, right? And some, because, because it's going to cost you something. And what it costs is the complete eradication of this country's system because white supremacy would have to not be supreme like it wouldn't, it wouldn't have to like it wouldn't exist right <sighs> what in an ideal world right but yeah okay I know you have to go so I don't want to not get to this question though mm -hmm. so if people have enjoyed getting to hear from you in this conversation the good thing is you have a whole patreon community where there can be access to Letty's list with all these amazing uh, recommendations, but there's also book clubs like I talked about where we read Asada, where I read it for the first time. So could you, before we wrap up and you have to leave, could you talk about what Patreon is and how people can join and support your Patreon community? Of course. Yeah. So Patreon is basically a place where you can subscribe to someone and whichever amount you want to pay each month, you pay that to get access to certain content, certain like different things that I offer. So it's actually, um, I, I started it in June of 2020 and have been doing it ever since. Um, I have six different tiers. I have a, a $5 tier. Yeah, so 5, 10, 15. 25, 50, and 100. I'm actually going to be modifying those here soon, like doing, making a little, a few changes to stuff, maybe adding a couple of more. Um, not quite sure yet, but you can go to patreon.com slash Letty Gore and you can um, join one of the tiers and the tier descriptions will let you know what you get access to by joining that tier. And all my tiers are named after some of my favorite Black people in history. Of course, James Baldwin is one of them. <laughs> but yeah, Stokely Carmichael, Shirley Chisholm, Angela Davis, James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, and Toni Morrison. And the book club, um, those tiers are the, the 25, the 50, and the $100 tiers. And uh, we usually read one book over a two-month period. Some, sometimes we read one book in a month, but it just depends on the length. And the reason why I do that is because as Nikki, you, you know this, some of the books we read are academic history books. Like they're pretty, um, pretty in-depth ones. They're, there's, uh, the, those where a couple chapters are kind of dense and it's helpful to read them with someone like myself, who is a historian who knows how to read these kinds of books and to 
um, help break things down. And so we have a conversation once a month. So like this month and next month, we're reading Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. And we're reading half the book this month, half the book next month. And so we'll have a conversation next week and then a conversation in April. And uh, I love it. I love, love, love everything I do really, but I definitely love the book club. And then the higher tiers, the 50 and the $100 tiers, they get access to chapter highlights, some little extras that I give out um, and just more access to me that they need. And so, yeah, the other tiers below those are lessons that you get, um, the ladies list, which is, yeah, a list of different resources. Um, oh, I do a live Q&A once a month. I do a webinar once a month, which is on a various topic. Um, sometimes it's just webinar style. Sometimes it's convo style. So yeah, lots of things that I give. Like saying all this out loud, I'm like, this is actually a lot. Uh, and I don't, I don't really realize it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's that with Patreon. And also here soon, I'm going to be uh, talking more about services I offer outside of that. So um, being a historian, yes. And that is my passion, what I love doing, but I also got my master's in conflict management and resolution. So it's a lot to do with communication and um, negotiation and mediation and facilitation. But what I do with that is I combine it with anti-racism work and uh, helping people navigate the tough conversations, how to literally have those kinds of talks, um, ways though to think differently um, as you're trying to work towards um, small ways of dismantling the system because it's not like a checklist kind of thing. It's more of a, it's, it's going to be a continuous thing. So I offer different services. Um, people can book uh, one-on-ones with, with me. Um, I do speaking engagements, uh, all kinds of stuff. And, but also another thing I want to highlight is I do research inquiries. So people can, that need help with, with researching something, let's say that you want to know about the racist laws that were in your city in 1960, and you don't want to research it. You want me to do it. Oh, I can do it. You just, you can have a meeting about it. Tell me what you're looking for. And then you pay me to do it. Um, <laughs> I love doing it. It's wonderful. So yeah, but there'll be more information about that for people um, starting next month because that's the second quarter of the year. And I promised myself I would start pushing it out then. And so yeah, and people can find me on Instagram at sincerely.letty. And my website will be up next month too. And I'll have an email list starting and all that good stuff. So yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say, like, again, I can't say it enough how valuable being part of your Patreon community is, like, not just because of the content, like, that is valuable, but also the community and, again, being learning from you and being in relationship and conversation with you is just such a gift. So I just want to shout that out and also we'll be reading for the month of July we're going to read the second by Carol Anderson like I told Brent when I was telling him books I would recommend I was like and we read this one in Letty's Patreon yes. and we read this one in Letty's yes. Patreon so you you always have such good book 
recs for Patreon that we discussed. And so they are making their way to so many other sectors as well. So thank you so much for your time tonight and just taking the time to chat with us about Asada. And and yeah, it was just always so good. Oh, sorry, you were going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to say, also, I I, I do want to say this, um, because Nikki, you've been a patron since the beginning. Matter of fact, Nikki, you were following me on Instagram before 2020. You were <laughs> you were following me on, on Instagram like 2018. Like before I got bigger on Instagram, like you're someone that knows that I, I've been doing this. I've been doing this. It just so happened that after George Floyd was murdered, um, people wanted to care about racism for five minutes. And, <laughs> um, but it lasted much longer for for people also, as far as wanting to actually do the work, which is great. And you're one of those people. And so I just want to say um, that you're someone that I've also had the opportunity to see, uh, to watch, um, challenge yourself um, and choose to sit with things that are hard and, ask the questions during discussions and want clarification um, and also accept the fact that you are a white woman who continues to benefit from racism, but you've learned how to navigate that and what what is helpful and what's harmful. And I just wanted to say that too, that it's been, that I'm so grateful (laughs) that you all love learning from me, but I want you to know too that I do this work because I genuinely want to see people have those aha moments. Like I can see it on people. I can see it when, whenever it happens and they're like, Oh, like I, I feel it. And it's been so wonderful um, to see you as you're continuing on your anti-racism journey and not just the journey with that, but just you growing um, and choosing to just, be like, all right, how am I continuously a problem? And how can I continuously work towards changing? Because uh, it's not, there's no finish line. There's no finish line to it because um, you're going to always be white. <laughs> and so it's more of, okay, how can I actively check myself? And it's been really great to see that. But also it's been great too to see you choosing to admit whenever you're like, oh, I didn't do this thing or, oh, I may have done this not the greatest way. And it's been cool to form a relationship with you too. Um, so yeah, I just want to say that as as well. And that's not in any way trying to be like, oh, like you're perfect. No, but I want people to hear because none of us are perfect. None of us are. Um, I mean, James Baldwin almost was, but he's not here anymore. <laughs> but, um, but like you, honestly, and I'm sharing this because I want other people white people who are listening to understand that there's no, this is not, there's no perfect way to do this. There's, there's no, that you read the books and you, and that's it. Um, It's a choice that you have to continuously make. And so, and Brent, this is our first time meeting, um, but just hearing you tonight, just the things that you pointed out about the book lets me know that you read the book. Like you read it. Like you didn't just put some post-it notes down and just put it to the side. Like you read the book. Um, And I know that if Nikki asked me to be on this with you, then you must be someone that is doing the work. So I also wanted to say that too, to you. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to say that. That was just so kind. And yeah, yeah, to reflect on the years that have gone by and yeah. And 
I just want to say that being in community with you, I always feel like it's an invitation towards growth, right? There's, yes. you keep the humanity at the forefront and there's not shame to motivate, mm-hmm. but rather this let's be mm-hmm. better. Like, you know, like think about Asada, right? Like being better, yeah. and better together. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation with you of all people to take the time to, to talk about this with us. So I'm deeply grateful for yeah. you as a whole human being and for uh, your time here. Yeah. And that's something too, like the, I don't shame people that is not going to help. That's, I mean, I mean, I would, I would shame the previous occupant of the white house, but I don't shame people that are trying to actually do the work because that's something that I say is I'm like, I want you, I, I want people who are my patrons and also others to come into the space with me knowing that if you say something or something, it's, uh, it's not right. I'm not going to say to you, Nikki, you should know that you should already know this by now. Like, why would you No. Instead, I'm going to be like, all right, Nikki. So I think what you're trying to say is this, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just like what it was because we need to tweak that a little bit. And here's why, right? Like there's, there is no me shaming you. There is, there is none of that. Um, that's just not how I am as a person. Uh, it's not how I'm set up. I don't think God did not give me the gifts I have to treat people that way. Um, now I'm going to defend myself and I'm not going to put up with any mess from people. No, absolutely not. But I know that people, people who choose to show up, right. Um, they're going to have questions. People are going to mess up and me shaming someone is not going to make them see me as a safe person. And so then it's, and if I'm not a safe person, it's because I, that if, if I'm operating more out of ego, um, then I'm putting self in it and that's, and I'm not doing the work that I'm called to do. So yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now, just so you know, Nikki and Letty, I'm going to cut that whole part about Nikki out and just leave the part where you, you know, take good things about me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. It's it's been great hearing more deeply about this book and about who Asada was as a person and getting your, your takes on things. I really appreciate you giving up the, the time and, in the mental and emotional capacity to to talk about this with us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you both too. Thank you so much. It was so good to see you, Letty. And we'll yeah, talk same. soon. All right. So again, I just want to thank Letty for taking the time to join us um, to talk about Asada. You know, and Nikki, what are your thoughts on the book? How 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 has this book changed you or how have you how have you gone through this book? You've read it multiple times now as well. Yeah. Okay. So my biggest thoughts were about how I didn't remember how she bounced back and forth in time. So it felt kind of like I was reading it for the first time again. So I was like, I did not remember that she did this. And I know that came up in our conversation, but I think it added such a depth to the story for her to do that because then it connected how she was in childhood and growing up to the woman she became. So I thought that was really cool. And it reminded me of how Caitlin Curtis, who is a, an author and she is an indigenous author. And she talks about how Western storytelling practices are often valued, you know, obviously in the West and they follow this linear progression. And so a lot of times the negative feedback she gets on her books is from people who say, 
that the cyclical storytelling that she uses, which is rooted in her indigenous tradition, is confusing or that kind of thing. And so it reminded me how even with my own book that I wrote, Astromary's Family, before it was called that, when it was called Restored Dignity, I used a lot of that back and forth. And there were so many people who were like, it's confusing. And so it just reminded me of how Caitlin Curtis sang that we value this Western storytelling and act as if that's superior when it's not superior. It's just a different way of telling a story. Right. And so just, I appreciated that Asada's book wasn't chronological. I think that had it been, it, it would have been just such a different book. And so that was something that just really stuck out to me and that I appreciated, I guess, more from like a literary standpoint, but also just, her life and I just appreciated that back and forth contrast and jumping in time and valued that when I know that's not typically something that we value in western society and storytelling we want that linear chronological progression and I like that she didn't do that yeah I've actually found myself reading more of the books I've been reading recently have that jump back and forth and I like it it you can get kind of a place to compare things you know from then and now, like one of the things that that amazed me about, you know, when she was talking about her childhood and growing up is how f- free she was in a sense, not not from the racism and everything else. But as she lived her life, she she kind of went everywhere and did whatever she wanted to do. She had that ability. You know, she lived with different people. And to me, you know, growing up in this you know tight little scared white community, you don't you don't see that much anymore. And, and seeing that, that that how she lived her life like all over the place free, but yet was still not, you know, on the, on the bigger scheme was kind of cool. Um, and then for me as, as, as an editor at first, when I started reading, I started cringing. Um, but then I loved by the end, I love the way she writes, um, you know, not using a lot of the proper capitals, replacing C's with K's, but it, it felt right while listening to while listening and reading this story, this book, this, this real life event to have it totally in her voice like that. So that to me was also a very strong way. I mean, you know, a lot of that gets put down in, in, in America today, you know, Oh, that book was so horribly edited, whatever, you know? So seeing it and, and reading it and just being able to like, just flow with it was really cool for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that preservation of her voice and really yeah it's like I felt the power of her speaking those things and yeah and it's interesting you even brought up the word free you know like from her childhood and the way that she lived and that was something I kept thinking about Tina's book Tina Strawn's book are we free yet and there were so many times like page 60 where Asad wrote I don't have the faintest idea how it feels to be free Page 155, I'm not quite sure what freedom is, but I know damn well what it ain't. Page 175, our desire to be free has got to manifest itself in everything we are and do. So I just kept thinking about Tina's question in her book, like, are we free yet? And our conversation that we got to have her. So shameless plug, if people haven't listened to that conversation to listen to our conversation with Tina, both about the book, Just Mercy, and also about their book, Are We Free Yet? And Oh my goodness. There was just so much, even in our conversation with Letty that I loved. I took so many notes about like the Black Panther Party and the narrative that 
I was taught and to view the Black Panther Party in a certain way yeah. and how Asada's experience being part of the Black Liberation Army and connected to the Black Panther Party and how it just gives this whole other angle on it. So that was something else that stuck out to me. And I hinted at this, but again, didn't want to take too much time when we were talking with Letty. Just the toll of when she was put into solitary confinement and reading about all that Asada went through. And I know in my book, it has the four words by Angela Davis and Lennox S. Hines and how the uh, Lennox S. Hines in that foreword, he talked about how, yes, I, I can't take away from what Asada has written about herself. However, she, you know, in his opinion, he was like, she's really downplayed all that she went through. And so, you know, and she would just kind of hint here and there, like at one point when she talked about being on the stand and how being alone for so long, she had practically gone mute, you know, because she had no one to talk to. And it was just kind of this sentence that's just buried in all of this, but the profound sadness of what she went through and and yeah and even that like reminded me of just mercy and the things we talked about with that conversation so those were some extra things that came up for me yeah definitely and and, and as as we heard with with letty is is how she kept hope through it all you know and still has hope um mm -hmm. yeah you know and there in, in the correlations we talked about this a little bit as well how you know she does not the white person it's the system that has been built mm -hmm. you know that capitalist white supremacist engine that is america um, but not the individual people um so that was you know that's really cool that you know she was able to still see that hope um but recognize that you know in there that that the white people still do have advantages that we need to we need to check if, if we ever want to have this revolution where we are all really free mm -hmm. yeah and i love even how letty brought up like revolutionary and one of the quotes that i didn't get to read uh when we were talking with letty was from page 203 revelation sorry revolution is about change and the first place the change begins is in yourself and it of course just made me think about my own journey and how a lot like at the beginning it was so much behavior modification of, well, let me do the right things, but not a lot of inner healing and just how much changes when I'm focused on healing myself and the trauma I've been through, as well as how that then connects to the trauma that I've inflicted on others. Right. And so the way that I feel like Asada, even writing about like how she didn't shy away from the ways that she looked back on her life and things that she regretted that she did. And I just thought there was such a vulnerability in that and seeing how yeah. her own healing and being able to embrace, you know, how, how that journey she went on to embracing black is beautiful and being able to say that I thought was just so powerful again, because of the vulnerability it takes to, to say that and how I think, that precedes being able to be a revolutionary, right? So I really like that. For me, I really only have one bone to pick with this book. It's the ending. I was hope 
open for a Sawshank Redemption style breakout of prison scene. Because I have to go do more research now. I have to figure out how she got away. Yeah. The, the adventure mm-hmm. lover. I mean, I, I need to know that story. <laughs> like, I know. That's it. so funny because it when I was re-listening to our Patreon conversation about the book, someone brought that up. Like, I really wanted to know how she got out. And I didn't listen to Letty's response to that. And I can't remember what it was, but I, I was talking with Steven about it, with my husband about it. And I was like, oh yeah, she doesn't write about how she got out. And so I was like, I don't know if that's because it's to save the, like if somebody else wants to try the same thing, you know, there's yeah. some sort of like uh way of, yeah. Cause it's just, it's wild to me, right. That she got, she broke out of a maximum security prison and got herself to Cuba, right? Like, yeah. especially yeah. when she was targeted by so many people that, you know, they had to be keeping extra eyes on her in prison. I yeah. Mean, yeah. And, but I, just, like, I, I have to know that story. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I just love how the resolve she had when she decided, oh yeah, I'm getting out of here because she had been kind of broken, like by like leading up to that. And, and yeah, and there was just such a, a rawness, even in how she wrote about that, like in so many ways felt like she was like, well, I'm just resigned to this is my, this is what's happening. And then her relationship with her daughter and, you know, like people can go, go read about how her daughter, something her daughter said to her and that precipitating her being like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Uh, So good. So good. Well, one other thing I thought about, I kept thinking as I read about this quote from, I think I might've brought this book up. I don't know if uh, I brought it up in a conversation that we've recorded or just talking with you about it, but it's the book Girlhood by Melissa Phoebos. And it's this collection of essays, but I kept thinking about it with the vilification of Asada and the way that the government tried to paint her. And so Melissa Phoebos wrote, it is a shared technique of abusive partners, corporations, cult leaders, despotic governments, and many who benefit from unequal power structures and wish to continue benefiting from them to convince the disempowered to identify with the needs of the powerful instead of their own. So just going back to that, what we talked about with Letty of by pitting people against each other and vilifying Asada, then it keeps people from banding together to overthrow the actual enemy, (laughs) you know, with this capitalistic, oppressive, patriarchal, white supremacist society uh, and heteronormative, all of those things. So yeah, that was, it, that was really good. Definitely. And that ties into, you know, as, as Letty and, and, and we were talking about the school system and how we're educated, mm-hmm. you know, it's just plays into that too. You know, we're educated to be good little worker bees, to not ask questions, to sit quietly when that's not how we are built. So, but, but then we get force fed the information. We, we'll learn how to memorize and repeat back and not learn and study because if we can learn and study, we gain this knowledge of true history and what really happened. And to me, that's, that's such a big reason why we have our school systems the way they are. Um, yeah. And I love that the quote you had put from what was that page 181 that you had posted yeah. was the one of the quotes that Letty read as one of her favorites. But yeah. That's such a good one too. Yeah. And Definitely. I think the, the other thing that stood out to me was how Letty said at like during our conversation that this could have been written at any point. And I think you had said that too about that quote in particular. And there was yep. just so much in this book that I'm like, oh my goodness, this could have been written like that statement that she read a yep. quote from her statement in prison that she had delivered. Like so much of that is like, you could just pick that up and put it into any point before or after she was writing in this yep. country and like just how 
not surprising, you know, like I, I've learned enough at this point to where it's not surprising. So I'm not sure what the word is that I'm looking for, but it's just so disheartening too. I don't know. I, there's a lot of feelings that I have about how, what, what she was writing about and describing in the, you know, seventies in particular could be at any point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it comes down, you know, with that, how we talk about, you know, you always the fed America's so great. We're growing, we're better than we were, you know, we've, we've progressed about what happened in the sixties, the seventies and the twenties. And it's all the same story. The only thing that's changed are the names and the technology. So we haven't really progressed. We've just changed how we talk about it. That's my thought. Yeah. Yeah. So and when I think about that, yeah, that you, like you said, you just changed the names and even learning more about COINTELPRO and who was behind that and what was happening and the president at that time and how it's like, oh, but how was, you know, the most recent, you know, as Letty calls him occupant of the White House, you know, not calling 45 the president, but the most recent occupant of the White House, right? Like these similarities between the lead the face of the government or the face of the country but how it's the same racism and the same white supremacy and the same capitalism the same system propped up but with new people so oh so many thoughts there uh and i feel like yeah, yeah i could talk a long time about that but anything Definitely. you wanted to say before we wrapped up and did our what's on the nightstand segment yeah, I have I have one more quote that I want to I want to I want to speak to here. Um, it's on page two hundred seven. It goes, "If you are deaf, dumb, and blind to what's happening in the world, you're under no obligation to do anything. But if you know what's happening and you don't do anything but sit on your ass, then you're nothing but a punk." That hit me because sometimes I'm way too comfortable just sitting on my ass, you know. And I, I just need to sometimes stand up and get the fuck out there and do something. And hopefully, this is part of that. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Like just that obligation to do something. I know that was what it was for me. It was, you know, and I believe it was Maya Angelou who had said, when you know better, you do better kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was like, once I really intellectually knew and embraced what I think I always like knew it on like a deep level that I didn't want, like a subconscious, like not wanting to really acknowledge white privilege and all those things. And, but once it's like, no, I know this, then it became now, what am I going to do about it? You know, how am I going to actually address this? And obviously, like I already said, it didn't come until later for the more internal working of that and healing and then letting that inform the actions and actually, yeah, doing something about what I'm learning. So Yeah. I really like that quote too. Okay. So I'll share what's on my nightstand. I'll just, I narrowed it down to just two books. So I have the unfolding an invitation to come home to yourself. And this is a brand new book just launched and it's by Arielle Astoria, who I follow on Twitter. And I think she's one of the first people and one of the only people to follow me back. And so I was like, Oh, she's following me back. And so that was exciting, but she just had this book come out and I just started it and it was really beautiful, even just the first few pages. And then I have the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan because I've always heard such good things about it, but never read it. And so it will be up next. And so 
I am excited to dig into it and be able to read something that, like I said, I've heard about all my life and have not read. So what about you? Yeah, I actually have not read Joy Luck Club or seen the movies. So I'm right there with you on that one. Um, my nightstand right now, I've got the book uh, Red Notice. It's a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. It's by Bill Browder. It's basically about the craziness of the of the, the finance market. And I'm only about a quarter of the way through it right now, but it's intrigue. And it's it's a true story. So it's just really, really intriguing about everything that that has gone on as Russia came out of Soviet control and the oligarchs took over or sorry, as it became capitalist as, as, as they tried to say they did. Um, but just like America, the oligarchs were in charge. Um, the other books I'm reading uh, demon lies by Cindy Tanner. Um, this is my first delve really into more paranormal romance. Um, this book was given to me by the authors. I don't actually think it's out yet. Um, did not know this, but she's a mom from our home school group who writes underneath a pseudonym. So she asked me, she found out I was an editor and said, hey, read my new next book, see what you think. Maybe we can work together later. So that was kind of cool. And then the last book I'm reading right now is Eats, Shoots and Leaves. It's a zero tolerance approach to punctuation. I've just picked that one up. Um, to work on my business. So I've heard good things about it, but I haven't even cracked it yet, but it's next. Um, and finally, Intersection, which is our April book, um, a story of faith, identity, and authenticity by Cindy Vaca Davis. Um, so that's what we're looking forward to for April. Um, so make sure you pick up a copy. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Have you started reading your copy yet? I have not started yet, but I should have said that is also on my notes. <laughs> <So, yeah. laughs> no, nah, you're fine. Um, so yeah, so in great news, we just found out today that we're going to get Cynthia to join us to talk about her book as well. So we're really Woo-hoo. excited about that. But any last words you have today, Nikki? I don't have anything else. I'm just very full after our time with Letty and then getting to talk with her and then process with you and just feel very, I don't know, a lot of energy right now. Yes. Yes. And thank you for, for bringing Letty into the conversation with us. And, you know, for you guys that are listening at home, tell us what you thought about the book on, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, again, you can find me at Ink Drinker Literary on Instagram and on Facebook as Brent Shubler. And Nikki, you are at I'm at Broadening the Narrative on Instagram, at Broad Narrative on Twitter, and there's a Facebook group for Broadening the Narrative on Facebook. That's where the Facebook group would be. Yep. <laughs> Facebook groups on Facebook. Are you sure? That's where it is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And and I do have to say this. I actually just on Monday, as of this recording two days ago, finished As Familiar as Family. Great book. Pick up a copy. It's currently on sale. Oh, thank you. I know so, I saw your comment that you'd read it. So thank you for taking, <laughs> thank you for buying it and then taking the time to read it. I really appreciate that. No problem. I got to know you a little better from that. So that's, that's always, always a joy getting to know people that, that you already have a connection with. And, but thank you for writing it and putting yourself out there. Um, it's never easy. I work with a lot of first time authors and it's never easy to put your word and your work out in the world. So thank you for that. And For everybody else, let us know what you're reading. Let us know what you thought about Asada. And we'll talk to you next month for Intersection. All right. Bye.